I uh, it was probably 1974, just a couple years before the Civil War, right, kids? You know, kids coming into college this year never lived in the 20th century. To them, that's like ancient history. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, uh, I, I was just my second year into teaching there at Pillsbury, and uh, the chairman of the Bible department came to me and said, Bookman, next semester you're going to teach a course on the life of Christ. And I was, I was horrified. I'd never actually studied the life of Christ. I don't think I'd ever read a full book on the life of Christ and so on. And uh, by the way, greetings from Shepherd's Seminary in Cary, North Carolina. Uh, uh, that's where I teach. And interestingly enough, the uh, dean of the school is Larry Pettigrew. Do you know that name? And uh, Larry Pettigrew was the guy that stopped me in the hall that day and said, next semester you're going to teach Life of Christ. So here we are together again after all these years. But it was a stunningly uh, kind stroke of providence as I look back upon it. And as Dan said, uh, just in the sweet providences of God, uh, uh, he's, he's put me in a place to give some time, and I don't claim any sort of mystical insight or anything like that. It's just that having taught it over the years and and... Notice what I call this. And by the way, as I, as I talk to, to Dan about what we might do while I'm here this weekend, I so much appreciate being here. I, I want to focus on the life of Christ, and, but I, the, the, the specific focus is Jesus as a learner. Now, notice how I subtitled the first session there. Do you have that in front of you? I, I call it uh, Concerning the Reality and Integrity of the Humanity of Jesus. And then the, the subtitle, Pondering the Inscrutable unscrewing the inscrutable, as we say. No, we're not going to unscrew it. It's inscrutable. But then I say, and bowing the knee to what is revealed. The fact is that I am persuaded that Christians generally, I would almost say, altogether too often, good, thinking, mature, studious, well-informed Christians uh, when they ponder the life of Jesus, when they ponder the man Jesus, they are guilty, we are guilty altogether too often, of really undervaluing, underappreciating the genuine humanity of Jesus. And, 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 and it's absolutely crippling. And, and that's what I mean when I say pondering the inscrutable and bowing the knee. I think the reason that we so often, and might I say, Almost in some sort of collective sense, we rather intuitively underappreciate the real humanity of Jesus because we're so committed to his genuine deity. And there is that quiet fear that, that uh, if, we, if we celebrate, acknowledge his humanity, somehow we're compromising or, 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 or undervaluing his deity. And I don't want to go there. You know what? Let me, let me say this. There are, this is a bit of an aside, forgive me, sometimes I do this, but uh, there are places, a number of places, in the world of theological, biblical thought, where, and I don't know how to say it any, any other way, where humanity just really bumps up against deity. You get this, this intertwining, this synergism, this symbiosis, you know, sharing almost, of, of deity and humanity. And whenever you do, you encounter a transcendent mystery. You're never going to figure out the relationship. Now, I give you a number of illustrations. 
and I might step on some landmines along the way. But, uh, uh, you know, for years, <laughs> I taught at a, a school in Philadelphia. It uh, connected to Friends of Israel, where I was engaged. And uh, it became my happy lot. All right, are you ready for this? This is a Sunday school. Can we go here? To introduce a lot of students to what we might call the doctrines of grace, to the reality of election. And this is the way I would do it. I would tell them, you know what? I believe with, I may get in trouble here, right off the bat. I believe with all my heart that the only reason, I believe because the Bible teaches me this, the only reason I'm a Christian today, the only reason I have any confidence, whatever, of, of heaven and the next life is because in eternity past, God set his love upon me and determined to love me in spite of who I am. I can take no credit for He's. I also believe that there was a moment in time when I stood face to face with the gospel. I had a choice to make. It was a real choice. It wasn't a pretend choice. And my eternal destiny hung in that choice. Now, how can those both be true? That's the point. See what I'm saying? You get, I'll tell you the most practical illustration of this, in my mind, is prayer. What are you doing when you pray? Think about how that, that intermingling, that, that because, and, and by the way, whenever you encounter this, folks, I'm headed for the God-man. And my point is simply, I'm going I'm to go back to my prayer illustration, just so you see where I'm headed. I'm trying to say that whenever you encounter this, 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 uh, this, this, this remarkably intimate interplay between the divine and the human, it produces a mystery, and our job is not to try to unscrew the inscrutable. Does that make sense to you? It's just to bow the knee to all the Bible says. And it always involves a, a rather narrow, straight path, and there's a rather deep ditch on either side. And again and again, Christians fall into one ditch in order to avoid the other, and you don't want to go there. Go back to prayer. What are you doing when you pray? Are you telling God something you didn't know before you brought it up, for heaven's sakes? Now, you know what? Some years ago, in one of the most embarrassing episodes in the modern evangelical world, kind of the whole academic evangelical world, and there's a lot of nonsense that goes on in that world, let me just tell you something. But we stopped, we, kind of the whole evangelical world stopped and, and gut-wrenched itself over this issue. Does God know the future? What? Doesn't it sound like that's insane? Bible believers are having these big papers, and does God really know? What? Now, you know where that came from? A couple of guys who said, well, if God... Now, that was more complicated, but basically it came, came, rather came out of Minneapolis, but I don't want to go there. But, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, but the, 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 the point was, if God knows the future then your prayers can't mean anything. Now, that's one ditch, you know. So, so on the other hand, I have spent a portion of my life, a good portion, <laughs> around dear brothers who are convinced the prayer doesn't mean anything. It's just, it's just God's way to get your head in, in tune with his. doesn't really change anything. God's decreed everything. We're playing out a script. It's all been rehearsed. Is that what the Bible says? Now, you see what I'm saying to you? You start, you spend a lot of time figuring out prayer, and you know what you'll do? Yeah, you'll quit praying, for heaven's sakes. The fact is, we serve a God who is bigger than we are, by approximately infinity. And, 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 
it ought not to be a disconcerting reality to us that there are elements of the moral universe and the way God conducts that moral universe. The, the trans- Would you like to serve a God you had all figured out, for heaven's sakes, who was no bigger than you, who never did anything that you couldn't? No. So I'm going to leave it alone. i got about three things going on in my head, but I'm just going to leave it alone because I want to come back here. I really want to get to some other points. But my point is simply this. There is that about... Matter of fact, let me just say this, and I think I've said this in these sacred precincts before. I'll finish a thought. <laughs> there is that about the person. You know what we call the, the, the formal term is the theanthropic person. Have you ever heard that? Theos, what's that? Anthropos, what's that? So we, we, we say the God-man. And there is that about the theanthropic person, the God-man, our Savior Jesus Christ, that does, and I am convinced, will for eternity transcend our finite capacity to understand. That makes sense to you? And we ought to wallow in that. We ought to rejoice. But, on the other hand, our sacred responsibility, obviously, is to bow the knee to all the Scriptures teach and acknowledge that God's God, we're not, but what He has revealed is absolute truth. Amen and amen? So that's why I'm saying, and it's really a huge... Now, because I may... Frankly, and be patient with me, but over the next couple of days, I may, uh, well, you know what, I'll, I'll say I may. I intend to maybe push you a little further than you may have been with regard to your understanding of the life Jesus lived. And that's where we're after. Folks, this is such, this is so close to my heart. I can get myself so, Jesus lived a real life. Be done with Clark Kent. You know where I'm taking you there? There never was a Clark Kent. That was Superman pretending. And sometimes we have this this idea that Jesus was just God dressed up like man. God carefully perpetuating the illusion that he was man. No, no. Jesus lived a real life. And I'll tell you something. And this is the grand takeaway. That the, the deeper... This reality gets a, the more thoroughly it gets a hold of you, the deeper it buries itself in your soul spirit, the more you're going to cherish Jesus and the more you're going to, to learn to lean upon him in a real way. And the fact is that Jesus lived a life stunningly like your life. Stunningly. And there is nothing you could ever endure, there is nothing you could ever experience but what Jesus understands it. Now, we believe this theoretically because, because the Bible teaches it so clearly. But on the other hand, I think we, we as we actually, and, and, and here's my point, too, real quickly. My concern and my observation, he says with some hubris, I suppose, but, but honestly, I run into this constantly, is that, as I say, Christians underappreciate the real humanity of Jesus but not with regard to their doctrinal statements. Any doctrinal affirmation or statement of faith that pretends any measure of orthodoxy is going to say what? Jesus was God, very God. He was man, very man. Amen and amen. So, because you can't escape it in the Scripture. I give you some quotes to that end. But on the other hand, uh, I think we tend to underappreciate the genuine humanity of Jesus in the way we read the stories. As we read the stories of Jesus' life, we, I would say witlessly, but and cripplingly, uh, 
just kind of quietly assume that Jesus is living out this or that event in the Gospels on a plane entirely different than ours. That he's sort of floating. This is what Doug McLaughlin calls the uh, hydroplane approach to Jesus' life. You know, his feet never quite had to touch the ground. He just kind of hydroplane through. Because after all, all right, I use this illustration all the time, and when I get to glory, I'm probably going to have to apologize to this guy. I never met him, but I, well, you, you all know him, and he was on the radio. And, uh, but he was talking about Jesus. We're going to talk about this in the morning service, about Jesus at the age of 12. And he made this statement. He said, well, it would have been hard to argue with Jesus because he always knew what you were going to say even before you said it. Now, hear what he's assumed. He's assumed that he's pretending... Okay, I grew up on Superman comics. Did anybody else? Do you remember the Superman? Are they still around? I don't think they're still around. But yeah, you remember the Superman comics? And he'd be walking down the street, and he'd, it was Clark Kent. He had a suit, and he had those glasses that totally befuddled Lois Lane. Remember, he could carry her across the country in his arms with a red cape, set her down, go in a phone booth, come back out with those glasses on, and she never saw him before. Remember that? I, that, was, that never worked for me. But... Uh, but the point is, here's, can you not see this, this frame in the Superman cartoon? He's walking down the street, and there's a wall there, and there's a cutaway in the wall, and the bank robbers are robbing the bank. And so you see a little ray go out of his glasses. Can you remember this? A little ray, and he can see through the wall. And no, nobody knows he can because he's pretending to be Clark Kent. But the whole time, he has all these superpowers, uh, which he's entirely exercising. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> That's the way we read the stories of Jesus. That's the way our brother who said he always knows. And I always say, this is what he said. He, he always knew what you were going to say before, and, before you said it. And, and my response, in my head, I'm thinking, all right, number one, two questions. Number one, might he have? Did he have the intrinsic power? Absolutely. On the other hand, given the record, did he? Did he always? Could he be surprised? Did he ask honest questions? Did he have to learn? That's why I want to think about Jesus the learner. And the Bible is absolutely explicit in every way. Now, that he, 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 he did. Uh, he took upon, here's the rub, here's the issues. Jesus took upon himself genuine, now watch this. He took upon himself genuine, unfallen humanity. Right? Wouldn't you agree? That means he was a precocious kid, but he couldn't see through walls. You see what I'm saying? He, 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 now, I give you on this sheet, and I'm not going to go through this. How's that? I had Dan run it off and so on. I'm going to use it, but I'm not going to go through this blow by blow. It would take a long time. But I know that you are a well-taught and scripturally and theologically aggressive body of believers, and because sometimes, frankly, over the years, people have become disconcerted when I focus on the, on the genuine humanity and then try to make, make it very practical, actually factor it into the stories. We're going to factor it into the stories of Jesus' life. And again, I just want to make the point that, A, this is what believers have always believed and embraced. I'm not pushing any envelopes here. The only envelope, I think, that may be at stake is kind of our habitual way we approach the stories of Jesus. That I want to challenge. And I, I, I may be in the wrong house. I may, maybe this is not an issue here. Amen and amen. But my suspicion is that, that it would be helpful to maybe challenge this in some areas. But I'm not pushing the envelope theologically, historically, doctrinally, 
this is what the, and I give you there some kind of fine points, and I even give you the uh, Chalcedonian Creed. We're not a creedal people. Uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know if the analogy works at all, but a stop clock is right twice a day. And, 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 and you know, there have been a couple of times in human history when, when creeds have been well expressed. I don't want to get into it, but the Chalcedonian Creed does a good job. There are a couple of areas. It's, we're not bound by it, but it is, you know what? Think about this just real quickly. In the Old I'm going somewhere. I'm wandering about. Oh, wait, but in the Old Testament, what was the... All right. A man comes and claims to be a messenger from God. He claims to be a prophet in the Old Testament. Uh, he would have had miracle-working evidence of that. But what was your first responsibility if a man, even if he had, do you know this, if, even if he had some miracle he was doing. Uh, what I'm appealing to here is Deuteronomy 13, by the way. So what are you supposed to, what's your first step if you're asking yourself, as you should, is this man truly speaking for God? He has some sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder comes to pass. But what are you supposed to do? Do you know? It's, I, I like to call it the Berean strategy. Remember what the Bereans did? They searched the scriptures. Because, here's my point very quickly. If anybody claims, this is Deuteronomy 13 says, if a man comes to you uh, with a sign or a wonder, and I allow that sign or wonder to come to pass, by which he tells you, let's go after other gods, which we have not known, even though he has a sign or wonder. Because he's saying that which is inconsistent with God, what God has already said, you're to stone him to death. Now, given that reality, that the first test, I call it a negative disqualifier, the first negative disqualifier of any man's claim to be a, a divine messenger is inconsistency with that which has already been said. Now, think about this. How would you like to have been the fella, the prophet whom God appointed to introduce the believing world to the reality of triunity? You ever think about that? All throughout the Old Testament, there's one God. There's one God. Israel rebels against it. God sends them to Babylon. They finally come home from Babylon. They seem to have got it. One God. We're going to live by our Shema. Behold, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. We know he's one God. How would you like to be the guy that said, oh, by the way, there are three of them up there. You know what I'm saying? How long would you have lasted? Now, I'm just, this is just kind of a thought exercise. My point is that God didn't do that. He didn't send a prophet. You know what he did? He sent his son, Jesus. And Jesus made two stunning claims concerning himself. Number one, he claimed to be God come in the flesh. And number two, he claimed to be distinct from the Father. And the early church spent about 300 years working through that, coming up with a glossary, you know, Trinitarianism and so on. Because they knew this, that what God said before is true. We can't abandon it. We have to cling to it. On the other hand, we have some revelation here, some progressive new revelation we got to struggle with. And, so, and, and the point is, out of that came the Nicene Creed, which affirmed his deity. And then, by the way, the pendulum kind of went the other way, and so everybody thought, well, if he's God, then he can't be truly man. And they went back, ransacked the Scripture, and out came the Chalcedonian Creed. That makes sense to you? So in the early centuries of Christian thinking and, and, and doctrinal development, the big issue 
was how to handle what God has revealed concerning himself. And generation after generation, nobly went back to the scriptures and ransacked the scriptures and came away saying, this is what it teaches. It teaches us that Jesus is God. It teaches us that there is but one God. And so that one God must clearly exist in three persons. Oh, by the way, which is so precious because you know what it means to me above almost all other things. It is God's nature eternally to exist in and enjoy relationship. There's nothing in your life more precious than relationship because you're in the image of God. And God's nature is to exist in and enjoy relationship. Think how wonderful it is. But it's a mind about... One of the most amazing realities about the truth of Trinitarianism and the fact that every generation... Have, we, don't, we don't trust in the Nicene Creed. We don't trust in the Chalcedonian Creed. You go back and check their work. Check their arithmetic. Go to the passages. Is this what it teaches or not? And every generation, that's exactly what it teaches. And, and, and in spite of the fact that it is supra-logical. It's not illogical. But it's supra. You know why, by the way? It so defies our mind. There is no analogy. We've got nothing we compare it to. If you've got the water, ice, and steam thing going on in your head, knock it off. You know, get, flee from that. And, and the fact of the matter is that, that there is no analogy. Because there's only one God. And all we know about him is what he reveals concerning himself. And he reveals that he exists in triunity. And he reveals that he has revealed through the life of his son and the claims of his son and the miracles of his son and the records of his son that this one who was born in Bethlehem and raised in Nazareth was the God-man. Now that's stunning. As a matter of fact, I always say, I I often say that I think we've gotten a little too too accustomed to the idea of of the God-man. I think it rolls off of our tongue a little too easily you know what i'm saying just this uh, i don't know that god has ever set before the world a uh, truth claim which more certainly and thoroughly drives us to the end of ourselves drives us to our knees in happy submission than this truth claim the word became flesh that's stunning we will contemplate that and, and, and wallow in it more thoroughly every millennium throughout eternity, I believe. We'll never get to the bottom of it, and it'll become the more wondrous to us that God took upon himself genuine human nature. So, and he did so in order that he might be our kinsman, because only if he's our kinsman can be our redeemer. And he did so in order that he might be our high priest, because only if he can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities can he be our high priest. So celebrate the mystery. Wallow. Welcome the mystery. But acknowledge it and then bow the knee to everything God says. All right, so we're on, we're on common ground here, right? Everybody's happy with that particular... All right, so I'm saying to you that with regard to the person of Jesus, it's so desperately important to take very, very seriously. Acknowledge in our way we read it. that Je- This is what I like to say, that Jesus was living his life out under the limitations intrinsic to unfallen humanity. Now, uh, this is is what I would encourage. And then I want to get to the return to the notes just very quickly. 
I would encourage you. I think our impulse when we are reading the narratives of the Scripture, honest to goodness, and this produces a black and white text. I would like to make it technicolor for you. Uh, our impulse is to read the stories of Jesus' life and, again, to quietly assume that, of course, he's living this out on a plane different than ours. He's, he's in, in, in constant... He never surrendered any wit of deity, and that's in your notes. But I believe it's fair to say, this is the formula I give in the back of the page, that he did surrender the independent exercise of his divine attributes. And it was only when God, when the Spirit of God specifically directed him to do so that he would employ those divine attributes such as omniscience. So did he encounter a woman at well and know that she'd been married five times, had five husbands? Of course he did. Did he encounter a man under a tree and know that his name was Nathaniel? Of course he did. Now listen to this. Did Peter, by the Spirit's enablement, know that Ananias and Sapphira were lying to him? Right? Do we leap from there to the idea that Peter lived his whole life constantly with that sort of superhuman, beyond human kin? No, we don't. We know that it was only as the Spirit directed Peter. Folks, folks, Jesus was every bit as dependent upon the Spirit of God as Peter or as you are. One of the best books I ever read, and I, I cite it on your notes there. But it's so helpful. It's by a guy by the name of Gerald Hawthorne, taught most of his career, I believe, all that I know about it, Wheaton College. Died just uh, four or five years ago. But he wrote a book called The Presence and the Power. And all he does is trace what the Bible says. Old Testament, huge. New Testament, Gospels, Epistles. What the Bible says about the relationship between the Son and the Spirit. It's stunning how thoroughly dependent he was. When people struggle with this, I say, the first book, go read that book, and you'll see that. And, and, and so my point is, Jesus did not surrender deity in any sense, to any degree, at any time. It's heresy to say so. And, but he did surrender, I would argue, the... And this is not mine. This is very, very standard. i give you a couple of quotes in the notes. The independent exercise, if you don't mind, of his divine... It was only as the Spirit directed and enabled him that Jesus knew beyond human ken, that he did miracles and so on. He was totally dependent upon uh, the Spirit of God. So hey, I'll finish a thought. i got it dangling out there and nobody else cares. But uh, when you read the Bible, the Gospels, the stories in the Gospels, I think our tendency is to kind of quietly assume that Jesus is living it out on a plane other than ours. I would urge you, urge you to do exactly the opposite. Always assume that Jesus is living that experience out under the limitations of unfallen humanity unless there is something in the text to demonstrate that the Spirit of God directed him to use, to employ, to uh, what we think of as divine attributes. that makes sense to you? I'll give you an illustration. Then I've got a couple of questions I want to talk about. But number one, I mean, the, the illustration... Uh, the man let down through the roof, Capernaum. Now, you know this story. Good heavens. Somewhere in the bowels of this church, there's a little model and you know, with the roof that comes off. It has to be. But, uh, but at any rate, uh, I always say this is a story that reduces itself quite happily to a flannel graph. Can't say that anymore either. Kids say, what the world is a flannel graph? We never, never heard of such a thing. But, but the point is that uh, uh, 
So, get the story. Here's Jesus, I think, in the synagogue, which you do what you will. It says it was in a house, but a building. But, but uh, his friends, you know, this lame man is let down through the roof. And by the way, the Pharisees are sitting right up front. They're dogging his steps. You can tell a Pharisee a mile away, you know, his blue is bluer and his fringe is longer and his turban's higher and so on. And, he's got, and here they are. They're trying to catch Jesus. And Jesus looks at the man let down through the roof and says, Son, thy sins be forgiven. Your faith has made you whole. Your sins be forgiven. And immediately, the Pharisees in the front row, the Bible says, began to murmur among themselves. All right, here's where I'm asking you to think with me. <laughs> so the next verse says, the next thought is, So Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said unto them. Now, I know, and it may be. He certainly, the Spirit of God often gave him the capacity to do this. But our, our intuitive reading of that, I think, is that it was, bzzz, you know, I can read you my, bzzz, I know what you're saying. All right, could be. I'm not offended by that. Don't, don't hear me. But I'm saying, do you need that there? Think about this story. I mean, Jesus is beating those Pharisees. Son, thy sins be forgiven. I could have figured out what they were talking about, you know? <laughs> what in the world else? And see, and see one, of the, one of the dynamics here that you miss if, if, you, if you overlook or underestimate is is his is genuine humanity, the limitations thereof. Jesus was the most blindingly intuitive man who ever lived. Absent any omniscience, he could read you like a book, I believe. Because, why? Because he was such a student of Scripture. And, 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 and he knew what was in man because the Bible reveals the truth concerning man. And with an unblemished, uncorrupted, unfallen mind, Jesus, as a boy, had, had, had devoured those scriptures and trained his mind to think according to those scriptures and so on. So I, 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 my point is, I don't help yourself if it's, if it's omniscience reading their mind. I don't think you need it in that passage. And I would just encourage you, Train yourself to assume that he's living it out. I'm telling you, it'll be a technicolor reading of the scriptures. Will you realize that this is not Clark Kent? This is the real God-man. Does that make sense to you? Now, I give you a lot of persiflage. When was the last time you went to Sunday school and you got notes with footnotes? Huh? See? So, but they're there. I know. This is a lot to ask. And I use these, this, this set of notes in a lot of the places. But uh, I, I want to leave that uh, because at the back of the sheet, and, and I, I pretty much developed the thoughts that I've been working on here this morning, uh, on the, but on the back of the sheet, I have just some related questions. And uh, I, I'd like you to think about these. Uh, I've got to go quickly, obviously, and this is to set us up for the morning service, but I say there, number one, did Jesus have to discover who he was when he was very young? Well, now let me just say, seizing, I'm the only guy in the room with a microphone, as best I can tell. But honest to goodness, I, of course he did. Of course he had to. Now, there is, and once I tell you this, uh, forget it, okay? I'm just telling you, this is a very, very unprofitable notion. But there are all of these uh, false gospels that support pretend to tell about the infancy and the boyhood of Jesus and so on. By the way, they're all heavily influenced by Gnosticism. Now, if Gnosticism is new, that's all right. Stay away from it. But Gnosticism was a heresy that infected the earliest Christian generations, 
And it was totally Greek, totally Platonic, which means what? It was dualistic. Uh, Gnosticism thought spirit was good. All that is physical is wicked. So they despised the doctrine of Jesus' real humanity. And they did everything they could to demean and diminish that doctrine. So you get these absolutely, at times, silly and jejuned. You know that word? I like the word jejuned. It just means banal, silly, worthless, empty, vapid. So you get these silly stories about Jesus, many of which are, are downright blasphemous. But one of them says, now hold on to your hat. This is what I want you to forget as soon as I say it. Actually, you, you, you'll get good at that. But uh, <laughs> I wander all over the place. Uh, there is a gospel story, kids, in the room. This is not true, okay? This is late, and it's a heresy. I'm just trying to illustrate something here. But the story is that as Jesus was born and being wrapped in, in, in swaddling clothes by his mother, he looked up at her and said, Handle me carefully. I'm the Son of God. All right. Now that takes some of the, some of the fun out of Christmas. There's no doubt about that. But, <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, now, now think about it, folks. Was Jesus genuinely human? Is it incidental or accidental for a human baby to be born pre-sentient without what we think of as mature human capacities? Of course it is. They have to grow. Did Jesus have to? Of course he did. If a baby is born speaking to its mother, it's quite simply not a human baby. That doesn't qualify. It's an alien of some sort. That is not a human baby. And, uh, and we would all drop the baby and run from the room, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so all I'm saying is that that kind of nonsense, okay, okay, let's be, just, just, just drive that home then. Did Jesus have to learn who he was? Of course, that's, that's intrinsic. It's inherent to humanity. That's what it is to be a human baby. Now, I, I go on to say what, 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 what we imagine that looked like, and it's only imagination. In the morning service, I want to talk about the Luke 2, Jesus in the temple, but and there are those over there. By the way, this is a sort of a subset of Christology or the study of Christ, and uh, it's called, now this same term was later applied to a whole heretical set of ideas, but, but historically, uh, I'm talking 18th and 19th, 20, early 20th century, there were tomes written, and it's called Jesus' Messianic Consciousness. And it's the idea of not, not as a boy, when did he, he had to grow into an understanding of who he was, doesn't he? Can we agree on this? And that would mean that he would, all right, let me, I say, what, what might we imagine? Well, oh, I, I, I lost a thought. A lot of people think it, I mean, I'd say a lot. I've run into scholars and so on who have argued that it happened at Luke 2, that that's where, I don't think so. I think when he was very young. Look, don't you suppose that Mary would have taken the little child Jesus and sat him on her lap and told him the stories of his nativity? Angels, shepherds, wise men, death threat. Certainly he would have told him. Number two, I expect that young Jesus early on, remember now, and and we don't have... Uh, a lot of data to help us understand that what this would be like. We're headed for it, but we don't. He had a mind uncorrupted by sin. And some people, I think sometimes I've run into this, people say, well, wait a minute, can you really be human without sin? Oh, yeah, you can. Sin is an invader in the human race. And God crafted the first human being, Adam, and he was without sin. Jesus was 
what Adam was in his mortal life before Adam sinned. That's what I think the last Adam is all about. But, but uh, when Paul talks about it, but the point is that, that did Jesus, uh, my, my, he had an unfallen mind. And I just wonder if, I, it seems to me he would have noticed something of a distinction between himself and all of his fellows. You know what I'm saying? There was a tendency to mischief that must have confused him as a little boy. He didn't feel that impulse at all. Does that make sense to you? I think he probably, but I think most importantly, folks, Jesus, you know, it was the responsibility of Jewish mothers to teach as soon as they possibly could their children to read. The Jews were always a stunningly literate people vis-a-vis their neighbors. Now, that doesn't mean they were smarter than their neighbors because literacy in the ancient world was not a... There was hardly anything more expensive than a book. You had to skin a lot of animals and sew their hides together and hire... So you didn't go, you know, there are a lot of books. And so literacy was not, it was an oral culture. They could learn and remember so much more. As a matter of fact, up until about the 3rd century A.D., the Jewish world refused to write things down because they didn't want to lose them. And they knew that they memorized. So, so, so my point is that literacy was not that big an issue in antiquity, but the Jews had been taught by Moses, Deuteronomy 31, uh, he said concerning the books that he wrote, this is not a vain thing for you. It is your life. He's talking about the books. And he says, therefore, teach it to your sons and your sons' sons and to their sons after them. And so they always regarded themselves as a people distinctively of the book. And they had to respond. So Jesus would have been taught as a very young child to read. And I think uh, he would have been a very quick learner. And from a child, he cherished the scriptures. Now, you and I can go to the scriptures and find Jesus of Nazareth. Don't you suppose Jesus of Nazareth did the same thing? I think that Jesus' consciousness of his distinct relationship to the Father, I think his consciousness of a remarkably special and painful mission, he learned from the scriptures. That makes sense to you. I, 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 he had he had to he had clearly to grow into an understanding of who he was, and I think it would have happened early as a young boy, and I think he would have uh, primarily just from reading the scriptures. Now that's going to become important to what we're going to talk about in the morning service. But does that make sense to you? I mean, I mean, listen. <clears throat> from the time Jesus and I think as an infant is taken by Mary and Joseph up to Nazareth after the Egypt adventure, okay? And they come back, and they're going to settle, and Archelaus is there, and so they say, no, Matthew 2, we're going back to Nazareth. And that time, I think Jesus is a babe in arms. From that time until he goes to be baptized by John, the Scripture doesn't record anything but the Luke 2. We're going to talk about that. But they're pretty interesting. We call them the silent years, not because that nothing was going on, but because the Bible doesn't record anything about those years. Now, in that regard, I want you to go to the second, second question there. And that is, was the growing boy Jesus a superboy? Now, this is the way he's constantly represented. Uh, all these stories, some of them, as I say, silly and, and, and kind of disgusting, some of them just flat-out blasphemous. I won't go through it. But one of the stories, now we start, and one of the stories that is most common, you hear it appealed to all the time, and there are various iterations. 
iterations of it, but that this, now again, hear me. These are stories in late third to fourth century false tellings of Jesus' boyhood, okay? But they come down through us to what we call the, uh, I won't get into it, but the point is that one of the false stories is that Jesus is about eight years of age and there's been some rain and there, and some of his friends, he's sitting with some of his friends there in Nazareth and they're making little animals out of the clay, setting them on the rock to dry. Are you familiar with this? And somebody comes along and says, oh, boys, you can't do that. It's Sabbath. And all the other boys are so embarrassed and they smash their little little animals and so on. But not Jesus. Jesus takes his little clay doves and puts it in his hand. And you'll see different stories, but ones that he blew on it. And the little clay dove took life and flew off. And all of his fellows said, ooh, all right. Didn't happen, okay? Are we, are we square? But the point is, these are the silent years. And, and that is the Bible. But I think there is a passage, and I've got to go there very quickly. I meant to save myself more time. I do this sometime, but I'm going to tell you. Luke chapter 4. Now, go to Luke chapter 4, if you will. And I'm going to tell you the story, Lickety Split. There's only one point. I love this story. It's so instructive on uh, so many different ways. But in Luke chapter 4, this is about a year. I would say, because the chronology is difficult at this point, somewhere between eight months and a year after his baptism. He's already begun to minister. Now he comes up to Galilee. He, he by the way, just a few weeks ago moved his family to Capernaum. But now he comes back to Nazareth, the little farming village on the top of a ridge just north of the Jezreel Valley, where he had been reared, where he had lived for the better part of 30 years. And, and Luke 4 makes a big deal out of it because he says in, uh, in verse 16, he says he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And then it says this, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. All right, now I don't want to dispel anything and hear here for Sunday school and talk about preaching to the choir for heaven's sakes. But, but the point is not that it was his habit to go to synagogue on the Sabbath. Uh, all right, I'll just leave it there. I think it's better read this way. On the Sabbath, he went to the synagogue where it was his custom to go. Now, Nazareth was a farming village. It was small. Well, it was geographically spread out because it was an unwalled city. And so you'd have these plots. And, and what you need to understand is that, you know what? All throughout history from the New Testament, even before the New Testament, every Jewish community, uh, there would be synagogues every little, pl- a little while. In a small community, they'd probably have more than one synagogue because they were Baptist synagogues. No, I'm teasing. But, uh, but, but the point is, that's another story. But uh, no, they had, I'll tell you why, because... The rabbinical rule, and it seems to be a reasonable rule, you can't work on a Sabbath, and that means you can't walk more than just over a mile, about a mile and two-fifths, and you might like to go to synagogue on the Shabbat, and so you've got to live within a radius of two and a half. You would cluster around these synagogues. that makes sense to you? And your life would be built into that synagogue. The synagogue is not a church, it's not a temple, it's the center of your life as a Jew. And one of the, one of the features of a synagogue, every synagogue, I could take you there and show them to you. Uh, we, there are several first century synagogues we have available to us now, praise God. I mean, they've been dug out and, and, uh, they always have what's called the Beit Midrash. And the Beit Midrash is the house of learning. It's where the rabbi teaches the boys in the synagogue. So several days a week they come and for several hours they just catechize them in Moses and the Torah and so on. And, 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 and so this is, the, and what Luke is saying is that this is the synagogue where it was Jesus' family, it was their custom, it was their synagogue. Now, here's my point. Jesus, 
these people in this synagogue know Jesus, son of Joseph, better than anybody else on earth. They grew up with him. They remember when this strange family moved back to town. They had probably... The habit was, the, the routine in that day, was to live your whole life in the, in the village where you were born. It was really quite radical when Jesus took his family and moved to Capernaum, Matthew 4.13, John 2.12, but we'll talk about that another time. But the point is that these people had grown up with Jesus. They had, they had gone to synagogue school, to the Beit Midrash. They had studied Torah with him. They'd run around, played tag with him in the recess or whatever. They were probably still a little blistered about what he did to the curve, you know what I'm saying, at synagogue school. But uh, regardless, the point is that they had watched him grow up. They had known him as a bar mitzvah. They had watched him apprentice as a, hold on to your seats, sorry about this, as a stonemason. He was undoubtedly, I think Joseph, his father, was probably a stonemason. Uh, the Greek word is technon, it means builder, and you don't build with wood in Israel, you build with stone, everybody builds with stone, and so I think he was probably a stonemason. But at any rate, Jesus had probably apprenticed with Joseph, Joseph had evidently died, uh, Jesus probably apprenticed his brothers and so on, so they knew Jesus. Now, the point is, a few weeks ago, nah, several months ago, Jesus, well actually, yeah, just a few weeks ago, Jesus had moved to Capernaum. We, here in Nazareth, these people in the synagogue that day, had heard about some adventures, about throwing the money changers out of the temple, about, about changing some water to wine just up the road here about ten mile, five miles. So, so Jesus had begun to make a name for himself. Now he comes back, and i got to be quick. The fact is that by the protocols of the synagogue, what happened, uh, it would always begin with a reading of the Torah, and then there would be a short uh, discussion of that or homily on that, and then you would read a section out of the, uh, ooh, you would read a section out of the, the the rest of the Old Testament. And if somebody came that 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 morning, and they did it on Saturday, Monday, and Thursday, and had some notoriety with respect and so on, you might ask them to read the uh, the, the 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 portion from you know beyond Moses and beyond the law. And Jesus was invited to do that. They hand him the Isaiah scroll. He stands to read. He reads Isaiah 61, one of the most clearly, unmistakably, and delightfully messianic passages of the Old Testament. Now he hands the book back, and he sits down. You stand to read. You sit to teach. And the Bible says, look at it there in, in uh, Luke chapter 4, and verse, there it is, verse 20. He rolled up the scroll, gave back to the attendant. He sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now, folks, make this real life. You know this boy. He's kind of a strange, you know, I, I always say that when Jesus was a boy, he didn't do any miracles, but he did some amazing things. Like, for instance, if Mary came out and said, Jesus, it's time to pick up your toys and come in, Jesus did a really amazing thing. Ahead <laughs> of me on this. Picked up his toys and came in, for heaven's sake. So, I mean, uh, so, so here are these people who know him better than anybody else knows him on all the earth. They had known him for thirty, better part of 30 years. At every stage of life, they'd watched the family grow. And now he comes back, and he's been doing some strange things. And he's invited to read, and he reads a messianic passage. And now it says, all the eyes were on him. You want to hear what he has to say. And this is what he has to say to them. Verse 21, he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, now stop there. Here's my point, and I've got to be done. But 
here's a, imagine the scene. All this, what is he going to have to say? And he says, today, this scripture. In other words, he is laying claim to be the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. Oh, there's so much going on here, I need to take you through. But just, all I want you to see is the response of the people, what they say. And what's perhaps at this point really important to me is what they didn't say. And you know what they didn't say? They didn't say, we knew there was something strange about this kid, something different. Ever since he blew on those little clay doves that afternoon, and they went flying off. Now think about it. And this is why I think Luke goes out of his way to say, these are the people, he went back to the village where he'd been. He went to the synagogue where everybody knew him. And when he laid claim, their attitude was, what is, this is Joseph's son. Look, at the end of his uh, Galilean ministry, he's going to come back to Galilee, Matthew, uh, to Nazareth, Matthew 13. He's not going to do too many miracles. But again, it's going to be, what's going on? This is Jesus' son. I'm sorry, this is Joseph's son. We have his brothers with it. We have... Here's my point. There are silent years. The Gospels do not record Jesus' years of growing up. But if there, I think this passage is at least intended, in part intended to help us understand that if there is one word you have to write over Jesus' boyhood, it is the word normal. The people who knew him best were absolutely stunned when he made the claim to be Messiah. What does that prove to you? Proves that he lived such a normal... Now, again, he was the worst goody little, two, little goody two-shoes. You know what I'm saying? I mean, he would drive the other kids nuts, and they couldn't get them involved in whatever mischief they were involved in and so on. But when they grew up, and Jesus stood there, and sat there, and laid claim to be the Messiah, they were stunned. We know this boy. This is Joseph's son. We've known him all of his life. Folks, understand, and we're going to talk about it in the morning service, but I think Luke 4 is a hugely helpful passage to give us whatever insight we can, biblically now, in the Gospels, as to the character of Jesus' boyhood. Does that make sense to you? All right, we've got to be done. Let me have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the time together, for these folk and what you're doing here at Eden Baptist. We just rejoice over and ask that you'd continue to protect them and use them and, 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 and expand their, their ministry here for your glory. Thank you for the time together and ask that as we ponder the life of your Son on the earth, that it would be, we would be strictly biblical but by the same token that we would learn to cherish the more, him the more, and we'll thank you for it in his name. Amen.